This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 113. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just usual housekeeping. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, also on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go on out there and look for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to go out and search for all that stuff, of course, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all little social media buttons. You can click on those and it'll take you right to my social media accounts. While you're also on my webpage, give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly. And you'll also get uh, a bi weekly email from me. Uh, also, please run out there and get How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. It's available now. If you haven't gotten that yet, you should go out there and, and pick up that book. It's well worth it. Ron Paul tells you it's well worth it. So, what are you waiting for? Uh, and if you do like this podcast, please also leave a review at iTunes. Uh, that'll help also spread the word. Okay, um, I want to talk today about a subject that I think is uh, pretty interesting, and it's one that people have asked me about before several times. Uh, they have, um, uh, in various forms, whether it's on a discussion thread at uh, Liberty Classroom or whether it's, uh, you know, in uh, in a conversation. Uh, what do you think about James K. Polk? And so I talked about James K. Polk a little bit on a previous podcast uh, entitled The Truth Flag when I was reviewing that, that particular book. Uh, but I didn't really get into what I thought about Polk overall. And uh, of course, you have this interpretation now that uh, James K. Polk is one of the greatest and most underrated presidents in American history. And uh, he was left out of my Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America book, and people often ask, you know, why did you leave Polk out? Uh, here's a guy that uh, you know did everything he said he was going to do, and uh, he's obviously this great president that nobody really knows anything about, sir, only one term, because you know that's what he said he would do when he was elected. Uh, so why haven't you covered Polk? What's the deal? Uh, you know, why do you leave Polk out of this great rankings, even when you've done your 10, uh, 10 best and 10 worst presidents, which... Uh, you know, you can get free online. Uh, why is Polk not in that list? What's what's the deal here? What's going on with that? Well, uh, there's a reason for that. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't think Polk was all that great. Now, Polk's reputation has been revived in the last, say, decade by several books. Uh, and I think that's what's going on. You know, Polk has gotten kind of a popularity boost. Um, and... That's part of the issue. You know, you go out to your Barnes and Noble and you see there's a there's a book or two about James K. Polk and and you think to yourself, well, this guy's I mean, this guy's pretty important. And of course, with the elevation of Andrew Jackson by people like Meacham, uh, you know, Polk was Andrew Jackson light. So obviously we gotta we gotta think about this guy. What's going on here? And I have to admit, when I was an undergraduate student, I really admired James K. Polk. I thought that uh, he was one of the greatest presidents in American history. Again, an under, I was ahead of my time. You know, here I am as an undergraduate 
20 years before any of this stuff becomes popular. I should have been writing books about James K. Polk uh, back then. And I actually wrote a paper as an undergraduate talking about the war with Mexico and how Polk wasn't really that aggressive. And I look back on that now and I think, my gosh, uh, I, was, uh, I was definitely uh, being uh, co-opted by the neocon foreign policy ideas when I was an undergraduate. Now, of course, uh, a lot of people go through that and then they, they, uh, then they wake up. But um, that was the case with me, and I thought, you know, James K. Polk is this, he, he is kind of the, uh, the 19th century version of a, of a 21st century neocon uh, in so many ways, which is why he's become pretty popular. Uh, and now there's some things that you can say about Polk that just don't fit that, but what I want to do today is, is talk about Polk, and I actually want to, want to base it on a little book, uh, it's... Um, it's in this uh, American President series with Arthur Schlesinger Jr. as the uh, general editor, and it's the it's the volume on Polk. These, these books are you can get them for bargain prices. Oftentimes, I got mine at the book outlet for next to nothing, and uh, they're they're nice little reads. They're, they're typically you know under 200 pages. In this case, the book is under 175 pages, uh, and it's a it's a nice little summary of the Polk administration. This is what the author says on the back of the book. Quote, James Knox Polk surely is history's most underappreciated president. Few Americans have any awareness that in four years he engineered the annexation of Texas, bluffed the British out of Oregon, waged war with Mexico to take California and New Mexico, enlarged the country's landmass by a third, and made the United States a continental nation. To read his presidential diary is to be retrospectively introduced to a chief magistrate who was tough-minded, strong-willed, egocentric, sometimes petty, usually predictable, often duplicitous, and always partisan. He served but one term by his own choice, pledging as a candidate that he would not seek re-election. He kept his word. A complete workaholic, he left office worn and ill and went home to Nashville to recover his health. It hardly seems fair that three months after leaving the White House, he was dead. So that little summary of James K. Polk is generally why people think Polk was this amazing president. Here is the list of all his accomplishments. So let's talk about what, what happened with James K. Polk and how this guy got into office and who he was, and then evaluate his administration. So first and foremost, we get to the 1844 election. So in the 1844 election, we have a situation where we've had the two parties, the Whigs and the Democrats, really create a modern political environment. 1840, in so many ways, was the first modern election. We had campaign slogans and campaign buttons and campaign songs and all the stuff that we recognize with a modern political campaign. And of course, that brought William Henry Harrison into the executive branch, and he dies a month into office, so then we get John Tyler. And John Tyler had irritated the Whig Party so much, as I've already talked about in this podcast and my books, he was booted from the party, and therefore he's a man without a party. The Democrats aren't going to nominate him. The Whigs aren't going to nominate him. And so uh, we're going to get two fresh candidates, at least it's thought, for the 1844 election. Now, the Whigs will go back to the leader, the unquestioned leader of the Whig party, Henry Clay. They will nominate Henry Clay as their guy. And this was seen as a great opportunity for Henry Clay because the Whigs won in 1844. Uh, they were generally popular at this point. And it was thought that Henry Clay could bring the Whigs back into the executive branch uh, in what they considered to be the true Whig principles, which was the Hamiltonian slash American system. In fact, 
the presumed frontrunner for the Democrats was actually not a fresh candidate at all. It was Martin Van Buren, who had already been president before. Uh, here's a guy that um, was, uh, was defeated in 1840, and it was thought the Democrats would bring him back because uh, maybe that was an aberration. And so Clay, as the great compromiser and the deal maker that he is, has a meal with Martin Van Buren, and they decide that they're going to keep foreign policy off the table, that they're not going to talk about it during the campaign process, and so therefore will focus entirely on domestic politics. Well, that would be great if the Democrats actually nominated Martin Van Buren, but they didn't. They nominated James K. Polk of Tennessee. So who was this? He was this dark horse candidate who uh, gets the nomination, and everyone's caught by surprise, including... Henry Clay. In fact, Polk was more Jacksonian than, say, Martin Van Buren. And so when you look at what Poe Polk was, first of all, here's a guy that was, uh, he was, his nickname was Young Hickory. I mean, he viewed himself as Andrew Jackson Light, Andrew Jackson 2.0. Uh, he had served in the House of Representatives, the Speaker of the House at one point, had served in the legislature in Tennessee, uh, really was uh, instrumental in getting the Jacksonian agenda through the Congress and other things. So this guy was going to be Andrew Jackson in the executive branch again. We're, we're going to skip over Martin Van Buren. And the thing was, James K. Polk and the Democrats at this point ignored the deal that Henry Clay had cut with uh, Martin Van Buren. And the 1844 election became in many ways all about foreign policy. So when you look at the, the 1844 Democratic Party platform, it included in its plank, we're going to go get Texas. We're going to go get all of Oregon, meaning we're going to take, and actually they, they had a slogan, 54-40-year fight. We're going to take Oregon at the 54th parallel, 40th minute, or, or we're going to fight the British for it. And so I'll talk about you know Oregon in a minute. We're going to lower the tariff. Uh, which was an important issue. Uh, so there were some things on the agenda that were were important uh, to the to the um, Democrat Party that were foreign policy oriented, uh, and that's really the the main uh, objective of the executive branch, anyways. Uh, you know, all these domestic issues that Henry Clay was pushing. This stuff was was uh, very much unconstitutional. Uh, as I as I talked about in my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. But Polk was a different kind of guy. First of all, the, the, the back of this book is right. He was a workaholic. Uh, he wins the election based on this foreign policy, based on this idea of manifest destiny that John O'Sullivan coined, where Americans are destined to spread across the continent and bring with them, you know, American forms of democracy and liberty. And there was all these paintings made about it. And uh, it, it was a powerful, powerful idea. Uh, in the 19th century. And Polk wins. And he is a workaholic. He's the first guy to have gas lights installed in the White House. And of course, at that time, they didn't call it that. They called it the executive mansion. But he has gas lights installed in the executive mansion because the guy prefers to work all the time. He'll work well into the night. Uh, he, he does uh, pour over everything that comes across his desk. Uh, he's very much a micromanager. And uh, you, he, the, the author of this particular book is right. Uh, he, you, if you read his diary, it's very detailed. Uh, if you want really a, a, an insight into James K. Polk, you can read his diary. Now, some would say that Polk was actually writing this understanding that people were going to read it in the future, and so he's very carefully crafting an, Im an image of himself that wasn't accurate. But uh, regardless, uh, Polk really considered himself to be, to be the executive branch. Uh, you know, he had a, he had a secretary of state. 
James Buchanan, who uh, was in so many ways, uh, you know, just kind of a, a doormat. Uh, and Buchanan later will be elected president, uh, of course, 1856. And that was seen you know, as a springboard, secretary of state into the executive, uh, executive mansion as president. But uh, Polk was the guy that, uh, you know, kind of like, uh, say, a George Washington type, where he thought that uh, he, was the, he was the State Department and that uh, Buchanan was there to do his bidding. Uh, and so let's 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 evaluate this Polk administration. Seriously evaluate it and see what actually happened here. So uh, before Polk even takes office, the issue of Texas had been resolved. Now you can say, as as uh, as I read to you before, uh, engineered the annexation of Texas. Well, Polk didn't really do that, other than he was elected on a platform that would bring Texas into the Union. So before he even took office, John Tyler had basically worked that out. Uh, and by joint resolution of Congress, Texas is annexed before Polk takes office. Now, you could say that Polk was responsible for this, and I've actually made this argument too at times, uh, again, years ago when I was in my Polk ad admiration phase. Uh, you could say that Polk should be given credit for this because without the 1844 election, Texas may not have happened. If, if Henry Clay becomes president, Texas is still hanging out there. I, I don't think there's any there's any question uh, that Polk being elected pushed the issue and allowed for the annexation of Texas to take place. But to say that Polk did it is to, again, stretch the truth a little bit to kind of manipulate what, what's going on here. So we get Texas into the Union before Polk takes office. So in that way, you can say, well, one of his campaign pledges is checked off. Uh, what about uh, Oregon? Uh, this is an interesting issue. So Oregon was a jointly occupied territory. The British and the United States both, both had citizens in Oregon. Uh, they both claimed it. There were more Americans there than British subjects. And so America had, in their mind, a more natural claim to the territory. But uh, the British still wanted part of it. And uh, during the John Tyler administration, John C. Calhoun, who was Secretary of State, was negotiating a settlement along the 49th parallel, which is the current border between Canada and the United States. And uh, that was generally agreeable to both parties. They had to work out some details when it got to Vancouver, uh, but they were, they were going to settle along that. Now, all along comes the Democrat Party with their 54-40-year fight campaign slogan, and James K. Polk is elected president, and lo and behold, the British decide they are going to cut off negotiations with the United States. This becomes a Cold War. Uh, the British and the United States almost go to war in 1846 because Polk became very belligerent. In fact, he wrote in his diary that he was looking John Bull in the eye. It's a nickname for the British. He's looking John Bull in the eye, and John Bull's going to blink. Uh, and so he was determined to stick at that 5440, uh, par uh, you know, 54th parallel 40 minutes. He was determined to stick at that border, which was the entire Oregon Territory, or perhaps go to war. Now, I think that cooler heads were already working on a better solution, and Polk eventually settled at the 49th parallel. But we go through about a year of, real, of a really tense situation with the British and the United States because Polk becomes... Uh, intransigent and, and decides that he's going to try to, uh, you know, n force the British to give the United States the entire Oregon Territory. It just doesn't work out. 
So that part of it, people say, well, he got everything he wanted. He got Oregon. He didn't get the all of Oregon territory that the campaign plan called for. He got Oregon up to the 49th parallel, and he had to give up Vancouver Island, which was uh, you know, a jewel at the time. Uh, so we didn't have to go to war with the British. And why didn't we want to go to war with the British? Well, because concurrently, as Polk is uh, working towards this Cold War with the British, we've also got a brewing situation in Mexico. Now, this is the part of the entire Polk administration that people look at and think this is a glorious time for the United States. We picked up a huge chunk of territory in, uh, in this war with Mexico. So how do we get this war with Mexico? Well, Polk didn't say it anywhere publicly, but what he really wanted was California. California was the jewel of the West. Uh, we uh, were looking at a situation where we could have a Pacific Empire. Now, when you look at that, and people had actually, Norman Grabner, uh, in his very famous book in the 1950s entitled Empire on the Pacific, uh, pointed this out. The, the, the whole point of the Polk administration ultimately was to get us a Pacific Empire to have Pacific trade. And the opponents of that particular uh, situation were warning people like Polk and others, don't do it. If we get involved in the Pacific, we're going to get involved in Pacific Wars. And so you look at what happened after the United States acquires California. How many Pacific Wars was the United States involved in? Well, uh, we have, of course, uh, the war with Mexico, which wasn't a, a Pacific War, but you know we got to have a war to get California. And then you just go you go forward a little bit, and the United States becomes much more involved in uh, Asia. We uh, we get involved in the um, in, 18, in the 1890s in Hawaii, uh, where the United States uh, orchestrates, or helps orchestrate American citizens, I should say, with the backing of the U.S. Navy, help orchestrate the overthrow of the Hawaiian Queen. So that's a Pacific conflict. And then, of course, and, and then we get involved in the Boxer Rebellion. We have the open-door policy in China. We get involved in the Boxer Rebellion. We send troops to the Eight-Nation Army. So we're fighting in China. Uh, we get involved, of course, as you move forward in time. Then you look at uh, the uh, Spanish-American War. I didn't mention that. Uh, how we're involved in the Philippines, uh, which uh, led to the Filipino-American War, uh, where United States troops were involved in jungle warfare in the Philippines. Then we, uh, you move forward beyond that, and we've got World War II. We've got the Vietnam War. We've got the Korean War. So all of this stuff was definitely a byproduct of Polk's interest in California, in the empire on the Pacific. This was going to happen should we acquire territory on the, on the West Coast. And you can say, well, you know, uh, we needed that trade. I mean, this allowed for the United States to be this world empire, this, this dominant force in the world. Well, what's, what's the cost? Uh, and the cost has been very expensive, very nasty wars for the United States because of our interest in the Pacific theater. So Polk wants California. Now, the problem is, of course, we can't, California is controlled by Mexico. And Mexico doesn't really like the United States because we just annexed Texas. In fact, the Mexican government had made it pretty clear at one point, uh, if you annex Texas, that's, that's virtually a declaration of war with Mexico. So um, now Mexico was very unstable, though. They had a lot of instability in the government. A lot of times, uh, you didn't even know who was in charge in Mexico, uh, who, was, who was doing what. And so when Polk comes into office in 1845, uh, he actually sends a guy named John Slidell, who was more famous 
for his, being ripped off the HMS Trent by the United States Navy uh, in the 1860s during the uh, quote-unquote Civil War than being part of this uh, secret clandestine operation to acquire t- California. But John Slidell is sent down to Mexico to figure out if he can purchase California, just purchase it alone. In fact, Polk has authorized Slidell to offer the, the Mexican government $30 million to acquire California, just California, not anything else. He just wants California. Forget about all the desert southwest in between. We just want California. And so Slidell, the Mexican government apparently is receptive to it. And so Slidell gets down to uh, gets down to Mexico, and he's hanging out off the coast, and the Mexican government sends word, nah, we don't want to talk to you. You're not setting foot in Mexico. Go back to the United States. So Slidell comes back to the United States empty-handed. He hasn't been able to negotiate with the Mexican government. He hasn't been able to talk about California. So Polk now has to make a decision. Well, what can I do here? What can I do to try to get California? He can either say, well, forget it. Uh, We're just not going to have it. Or he can try to get it through force. And essentially, that's the decision he makes. So there was a disputed disputed area between the Mexican uh, border and the United States border in Texas. Texas and the United States claimed the Rio Grande as the border between Texas and Mexico. Mexico said, no, it's the River Nueces. So, uh, and so what we're going to get is a standoff between the Mexican government and the United States that results in conflict. Uh, General Zachary Taylor is sent into this disputed territory and the Mexican army fires on him. And so now Polk goes to Congress in June of 1846 and says, American blood has been shed on American soil, which was disputable, and we need to go to war with Mexico, and we do. Now, that's going to get us California. Uh, in fact, at the end of the day, after uh, over, um, uh, you know, I can't remember the exact casualty numbers, it was, it was uh, uh, close to 10,000 men, I believe, were killed in this war with Mexico. After that, uh, and $18 million, we acquire not only California, but also the disputed territory between Texas and Mexico and the entire Mexican session, which is uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, Colorado. Uh, you know, all of that territory now becomes part of uh, the United States. And uh, this, this was problematic for the future of, of America. In fact, John C. Calhoun, who was often seen as the uh, major exponent of the slave power theory, uh, goes on record saying, we don't need to be in Mexico. We don't need to be acquiring this territory. This is going to be dangerous for the United States, for the stability of the United States. And he does this because in 1846, before the United States has even uh, gotten a, a, a single uh, square uh, inch of territory, you have a guy named David Wilmot of Pennsylvania, who was a Democrat, introducing a, a rider to a military spending bill, which would have forbade the introduction of slavery into this territory. And so already this issue of slavery expansion is being brought into public discourse before we even get any territory. Plus, you've got John C. Calhoun saying that this war was an executive war. It's a dangerous abuse of power by the executive branch, and we don't need to be doing that. The executive branch essentially is out of control. James K. Polk is out of control. Let's be very careful about uh, you know getting involved in this war because this is dangerous for America, for the United States Constitution, uh, for American government. We don't need executive government, and that's what we're getting. And so 
Calhoun's opposition to the war was twofold. One, it was going to create more sexual animosity, and two, it was going to unconstitutionally enlarge the powers of the executive branch. And it did both of those things. You, you don't have all the problems of the 1850s without the Mexican cession, because all these issues had essentially been settled and how the territory was going to be uh, divided up uh, before this, this war. But now with the war, you've got uh, the Pandora's box opening up. You've got the Compromise of 1850. You've got the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And that question of how slavery, if it's going to expand into the territories, where it was going to expand. And as, as I've already talked about in this podcast, you have to ask the question, why slavery? Not if slavery was important, but why slavery was important. And the answer is not because of moral concerns for the plight of slaves. It was because uh, Northerners did not want uh, slavery expanding into the territory because they wanted it for, as they said, free white men. And so uh, it was a different different position entirely than what you would think uh, in, your, in your very bland cartoonish history books. So uh, Polk, though, does get all this territory. And again, check off a campaign pledge. But this wasn't really a campaign pledge. This was Polk's secret desire to get his empire on the Pacific. And it created a disastrous situation for the United States in the future. We did also get a reduction of the tariff, uh, which Polk wanted. And so you can say, well, he got that. Uh, you know, the United States uh, had, had uh, gone back and forth about the wisdom of, of a protective tariff. And uh, during the Polk administration, that is reduced. And of course, so Polk is only going to serve one term. He said, I'm going to serve one term. I'm going to do what I say, and I'm out. Now, Polk did die three months uh, after leaving office, and that's another issue that's quite interesting. You know, you had William Henry Harrison die in 1841, you had James K. Polk die in 1849, and you had Zachary Taylor die in 1850, the guy that succeeded James K. Polk in office. And it was thought originally that there were several different causes of this, but really what historians, I think, have maybe thought about, uh, medical historians, is that there was... um, an open sewer in Washington, D.C. that was contaminating the water supply. And all three of these presidents exhibited uh, symptoms of uh, intestinal disorder that was caused by uh, the bacteria seeping into the water supply. Even John Tyler uh, had some problems with it, but uh, didn't die. So uh, once they cleaned that up, you didn't have a president die again. Uh, they, they cleaned all that up, got a sewer system put in. And so James K. Polk was probably uh, a, vi- a, a victim of this uh, poor sanitation of Washington, D.C. And he does leave office. And, of course, Zachary Taylor then is elected in 1848. The Whigs come back into power. Uh, and uh, I think I've talked about on this podcast before how these two guys uh, would uh, ride in a carriage uh, leading, uh, first of all, they didn't like each other. You know, Zachary Taylor and James K. Polk didn't like each other. Polk had actually sacked Taylor uh, during the war, had removed him from from uh, command of and, and put Winfield Scott in charge. So the two guys didn't didn't really see eye to eye. And Taylor had made a comment to Polk that he thought that all of his territory, we should just have a, a, the country of California. All this area should be allowed to basically become self-governing, uh, that we don't really need the United States controlling it because that's dangerous for the future of the United States. And uh, Polk was shocked by this. What are you talking about? Uh, you know, this is going to be American territory. And uh, Taylor was kind of exhibiting a position, a secessionist position here, which is why uh, I list Zachary Taylor as one of the 10 uh, greatest presidents in American history. If you'll look, again, that, in that course that's out there, uh, you know, I, I have a number of presidents that didn't serve full terms. 
and Zachary Taylor is one of them. And, and I think that's because Taylor well understood the, the ramifications of all of this territory and what that was going to do for the future of the United States. It was going to be a major problem for American government and the stability of the United States moving forward. But Polk is now out of office, and we can look at his legacy in the rearview mirror. So uh, I think when you start talking about the, the legacy of James K. Polk, what did he bring to the table? Uh, he definitely brought a, a foreign policy that was similar to what you would see in the 20th century, uh, a very aggressive foreign policy, an expansionistic foreign policy, and that way he's more like Teddy Roosevelt uh, or uh, even William McKinley uh, than anyone else. He's, he's, he's a neocon. There's, there's also a reason why William McKinley is, is being elevated uh, recently by the neocons. You're starting to see more and more books about William McKinley, uh, I, I just saw the other day that Robert Mary, who is now the uh, editor-in-chief of the American Conservative, and that's you know, completely destroyed that uh, magazine, but uh, he's writing a book on McKinley and how McKinley uh, is, uh, is this great American figure. And uh, you've got uh, uh, you know, various Bush-era appointees, uh, various Bush-era uh, uh, government officials, uh, praising William McKinley, of, of course, because he follows their foreign policy ideas. And uh, foreign policy does help determine domestic policy. And in this particular case, without the war with Mexico, we don't have all the domestic policy issues of the 1850s, as I've already said. So uh, this is why I think Polk has been elevated to the status of someone who is important, a neocon before we had neocons. Uh, he's kind of this guy that favors, you know, th theoretically limited government, but he's a strong executive, like an Andrew Jackson type. Uh, he is uh, someone who believes the executive branch is the most important branch of government, not the Congress, but the executive branch. That the executive branch should set the stage, and that's kind of that's how the neocons look at American government. They think that the executive branch is the most important branch in government, and that it should set the stage. That I mean, we need dominant unless you, unless your type of executive is not in office, and then of course we're going to sit back and, and snipe at it. Uh, but when we get in office, well. No holds barred, we're going to have executive government. So Polk in that way is a 21st century neoconservative. Uh, and I think this is why, uh, when you look at who, how presidents are ranked, this is why Polk's status is being moved up the chain a little bit uh, because of the situation with the war with Mexico, acquiring this territory, being uh, you know a guy that went out and got us Oregon, and we have this national greatness conservatism, we have manifest destiny, all these things. But would the United States have been better off should we, had we never acquired this territory? Uh, or done as Zachary Taylor suggested, well, let all these people become uh, independent. California actually had an independence movement during the war. There was some discussion about California becoming an independent republic then. Would it not have been better for the United States moving forward to have that? If we were, we're already looking at California as an independent republic again. Uh, you know, there's a strong secession movement in California. Or how about Texas? A strong se uh, secession movement there or other places uh, in, the, uh, in the United States. Hawaii has a strong independence movement. So does Alaska. Uh, you've got uh, various factions in New England and the South that talk about independence. So, uh, but in this case, 
would would maybe California have been better off to be independent? And we never acquired the desert southwest. Would the war even have happened in the 1860s? I think these are all very important questions. But of course, an aggressive, expansive foreign policy is behind bringing all of these things into play, which is why we should be very careful about what type of foreign policy we advocate in the United States. So when you look at the Polk administration, I don't think you can say the Polk administration is one of the greatest in American history. If you want to say it's because he checked off many of his items on his list, his to-do list, his little shopping list as he came into the executive branch, his honeydews, well, I mean, okay. But the fact is, these honeydews were dangerous. Uh, and we almost were fighting two wars at the same time. Uh, and uh, the domestic success does not outweigh the foreign policy disasters, ultimately, with the Polk administration. So that's my take on Young Hickory. Uh, People have asked me about Polk several times. There you have it. Uh, And I'll see you next time on The Brian McLean.